and Bigorda, it's time for another one of New York's nuttiness days. Sure and Bigorda, it's St. Patty's Day. Sure. <laughs> Bring it up, big there. Right, sure. Uh, by way of a disclaimer, for those of you who cannot tolerate St. Patrick's Day, I would warn you, uh, the following program is that will make you uh, want to flow up. Uh, we're going <laughs> to... Oh, yeah, sure, then, because it's St. Patty's Day. Bring it up. That's enough of that. Let's get right out here. Hey, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, I have a, you know, even though it's Friday night, you know, Friday's a very exciting time. We get all ready and do all the whoopee stuff and yell and holler. Do you mind tonight, since it is St. Patrick's Day and there is no, I, I don't think really there is any holiday that gets New York as completely involved as St. Patrick's. Now, a lot of people are going to say Christmas, but I don't think so. I think I think there's something about St. Patrick's Day that completely involves this nutty town. And I've never seen it anywhere else, even including Ireland, you know, <laughs> which is the nuttiest part of it all. I've been, to, I've been in Ireland myself several times, and I remember one day, uh, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Dublin, see, and uh, I'm I'm standing I'm standing in the bar at the Shelburne, and uh, I'm hoisting a few. Uh, after all, when you're in Ireland, you must do as the Romans do when you're in Rome. Uh, when you're in Rome, you don't uh, sit around there and eat uh, eat. Uh, well, I'll tell you this for for one thing: when you're in Rome, you don't sit around and have uh, Braunschweiger. Uh, in Rome, you don't sit around and eat uh, sauerkraut. In Rome, of course, you have pasta. You have uh, you have lasagna. And when you're in uh, Dublin, uh, you do as the Romans do. And so I'm standing there up against the bar in the Shelburne, and I'm uh, having a little of the uh, Irish mist and looking into the mirror. And standing next to me is probably the most Irish of all the Irishmen I've ever known, a genuine Irishman. I mean, really, can you imagine an Irishman with a name more Irish than Seamus Kelly? I mean, Seamus Kelly. I mean, it's not like, but old Seamus looks at me, and I look at Seamus, and we're... Sipping of the dew, and I said, uh, Seamus, we're in Dublin. He said, Ah, Dublin. And then we looked back into the mirror again, and over the mirror they had this painting of this naked lady, a very large naked lady, an Irish naked lady. She had red hair, and uh, she looked very Irish. And that's what, one of the reasons why that painting was over the mirror in the bar there, because she was so Irish. It wasn't that we, <laughs> she had a lot of hips all over. And so uh, we're both looking into the mirror, and, and uh, Seamus suddenly says to me, uh, uh, it's a shame I can't be in New York at this time of year. And I said, what's the matter, Seamus? He said, oh, there's nothing like New York on St. Patty's Day. I said, nothing like New York on St. Patty's Day? I said, but Seamus, we're in Dublin on St. Patty's Day. Ah, it's nothing, 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 lad, nothing. St. Patty's Day in Dublin is just another day. <laughs> but, oh, I'll tell you, in New York, uh, you, you mind if I do a little reminiscing about Ireland tonight? You, you like that? I mean, one of the most, uh, one of the, one of the most uh, poignant countries is Ireland. I, don't, I can't explain it. Uh, I've been in many countries. I've been pretty much all over the world. 
And each country is, is, is beautiful in its own right. There's no question about it because we're living on a beautiful earth. And uh, that is, it's beautiful from the eye of man. And this is the way we define beauty. And so if you're standing in the Negev Desert, I find it beautiful. Uh, if I'm in, uh, in the streets of Bangkok with that hot, searing oriental sun racking down, I find it beautiful. I find Ireland beautiful. It's a superb country. But each country has a word in my own mind that kind of uh, captures, I don't want to oversimplify, but kind of captures. For example, you must say this about Israel. Israel's exciting. It's an exciting country. Uh, America is a dynamic country. Uh, everybody I know that comes to America, there's something in the air about America. It makes, makes people wonder. You agree with me? It's a dynamic, strange country. Uh, I've been to countries that could be called languid. Languid. You you step out of the plane and you walk down the street and it's like you're you're in the middle of some kind of soft, warm syrup. It's a languid country. You've been in them. Then I've been in countries that are uh, lascivious. Oh yeah, I've been in lascivious. And and uh, some night after the show, for those of you who are over 21, we'll sit around and talk about a few of those countries. And they're not the ones you think they are. Generally, people think they're Sweden. Not at all. I find Sweden one of the great last bastions of true prudery. Uh, and that, <laughs> that's, uh, that's in another sense. But, but uh, Ireland, Ireland is a poignant country. A curious sense that, that hanging over all the hills, I remember stopping by the side of a road one time in this car, driving along, and little English Ford, and I'm all by myself, and, and uh, I stop by the side of the road. And off in the distance, you can see these light blue hills. And I was driving, I was driving to Dublin, and uh, between the blue hills and the road, there were oh, maybe uh, three or four miles of peat bogs, and there was a soft grayish blue, vaguely, uh, vaguely pink smoke rising from a few little houses between me and the mountains. And it was absolutely silent. And it was just about this time of the year. In fact, it was uh, in March, and that's one of the reasons why I mentioned talking to Seamus about being in Dublin on, on St. Patty's Day, which is exactly what happened a few days later. But I looked over this, uh, this long, low, rolling field, this peat bog, and you could smell it. You could smell the... Uh, you could smell the, the grass, and you could smell the peat, and you could smell the smoke. It was all mingled in the air. And in the distance, I could see this, uh, this low-lying hill, just a, a, low, a low ridge of hills, and they were purple and vaguely grayish and kind of misty like clouds drifting away. And behind me on the left, there was another short hill that rose green. Every, you know, Ireland really is green. I'm going to say that to you. It's a combination of its of its uh, of its uh, geographical location and the sea air that's always sweeping in over this this country. It's absolutely green. It's beautiful from that from that green grayish soft tinted background. I always think of Scotland as burnt orange. Scotland is a burnt orange brown uh, shabui country. It's a, it's a lovely country, but a different kind of country, different color, different feeling in the air than it is in Ireland. And off to my left was the sea and a short hill. And rising out of this hill, 
there was a mound of, of red and gray granite stones, what was left of an ancient castle that had slowly uh, given up and drifted down into the darkness of the ancient past, and now all you could see was this pile of stones outlined against the sky. And this was not tourist country. It was an old, old stone home that had finally lost the battle. And I could smell the smoke. It was silent. You could hear bells ringing on cows. They always have cows. There's always a cow somewhere near you in Ireland. And you could hear the bells ringing on the cows. And I don't know why, but I had a feeling not of how beautiful this is, which it was. I did not have a feeling of what a great place to be, which it was. But a feeling of how sad all this is. What a sad place Ireland is. In a curious kind of, kind of way. And, uh, and yet it's a, yet it's a play, a place where, where there's a lot of fun and a lot of joy. Don't, don't mistake me. It's not, it's not that the people are sad. Not at all. But there's, there's that poignant quality, that, that quality of something vaguely lost. And, and with that bluish tint, that, that always hanging gray, blue, green, soft haze that is in Ireland. After you're in Ireland, maybe I would say, Oh, maybe a month. You really do believe in elves. You honestly do. You believe in, in, uh, in elves and fairies and little people. Because if they're anywhere in the world, they're in Ireland. Now, I'm not... I, it's, this is a... Why? Well, it's hard to say. And I remember one afternoon uh, walking, walking along a winding street in Dublin right near the river, and that's one of the most beautiful rivers in the world, by the way, walking, and across the river, could, you could see the, the brewery, and you could smell the Guinness stout hanging in the air. What a country. And we're walking along through this winding street that was vaguely wet, and I'm with Seamus. And I said, you know, uh, Seamus, uh, uh, it's a funny country. And this is uh, after I had been there maybe two or three times. And the, the, the actual feeling of Ireland began to drift down into me. Uh, when you're first there, all you're interested in is, uh, is, the, is the great dialogue and the dialect and the way the people talk. And Seamus and I were going out to lunch. And Seamus uh, is a writer in Ireland. Uh, almost all Irish, Irishmen are writers in one way or another, even if they never write, even if they only talk. <laughs> it's a, again, it's maybe perhaps that sense of something lost and gone which causes Irishmen to be what they are and talk the way they do and think the way they think. And uh, we went into this tavern. You know, the curious thing about Ireland, too, is the love-hate quality about it, that all Irishmen love Ireland and hate Ireland. Maybe it's like life itself. Maybe this is why Ireland has a unique place in the hearts of everyone all over the world, because I suspect that more of life, I mean, the real quality of what life is, can be found in Ireland than anywhere else in the world. Just like your own life, you hate it and you love it. And it's hard to know which is the most important. And you keep going back and forth, drifting around between those two, those two poles, love and hate, love and hate. And in Ireland, it's always there. You look around and it's green and soft and you can smell the sea and you can hear the birds and the bells. And there's that drifting haze of peat bog and the smoke and the magnificent horses. 
and the beautiful cattle and the roads, the winding roads and the old castles. And you have the sense of love and hate. And it's not really hate. It's sadness, really, more than anything else. Because I don't think most people hate life. They get sad about life. And at the same time, they don't really love life. They exhilarate in it. They ecstasy in it. And uh, this is the way it is in, in Ireland. You can't say you love it, and you can't say you hate it. And the Irishmen themselves, if you notice, most Irishmen leave Ireland and then spend the rest of their lives writing about it with that strange Sean O'Casey, James Joyce, Frank Sullivan. You can go on down the line, and, and uh, there they are, all of them. That that uh, that uh, strange... Speaking of... Oh, that's, that reminds me. This is WOR New York. Hit the whoopee button, will you, man? There are many good beers in America today. And a fine thing it is because you have a choice of quality, of taste, of name, and of price. Now, for those who have a more than average liking for a refreshing glass of beer, the brewers of Miller High Life have always offered a beer of unusual quality, of hearty, distinctive flavor, and of such a sparkling smooth satisfaction, it has become world famous as the champagne of bottled beer. Only the tenderest of hops selected right off the vine, only the rarest of barley grown in special fields, and only the slowest, most patient methods are used to bring Miller High Life to the peak of its perfection. But please do not take our word for all this. The only real test of Miller High Life is to taste it. All you can lose is your preference for any other beer. Ask for Miller High Life. Millions of people do. Brewing Company, Milwaukee. China. Oh, you know, speaking of beer, well, that's another story. We'll get into that, too, in connection with Ireland. And uh, while we got the commercials going here, uh, you know, Ireland is a country I don't talk much about. Have you noticed that? Well, I have Irish blood in me, and uh, you can probably tell that. And uh, <laughs> the Irish are born storytellers. And, well, of course, there's other words for it. Uh, but uh, my grandmother was a Rafferty, and... Uh, for those of you who are interested in the type of Rafferty, she was a Flotta Rafferty. And that's about as Irish as you can get. And uh, the type of Irish that she was was south side of Chicago Irish, which is very different from the Boston Irish. And uh, I will talk at little lengths after this uh, series of the spate of commercials that we, <laughs> that we have here. Let's see. We've, got, uh, we've just done Miller. And we've got Rover. And uh, if you, too, uh, have a streak of uh, anglophilia running through you, I would uh, uh, like to suggest you find out about... The, you have rovers down there in the islands, right? You've seen rover cars, magnificent cars. Hey, there was a TV show, a movie on last night about Africa. And it opened up with this man traveling in a Land Rover into darkest Kenya. And if you've wondered whether there's any lineal relationship between the Land Rover and the Rover 2000, they're made by the same company. And uh, the Land Rover, of course, is fabled. This is a fabled automobile. And uh, for those of you who are fascinated by this car, the Rover, we would be more than delighted to send you a picture and uh, some technical specifications and so on. Just send your name and address to Rover here at WOR, and believe me, you'll discover an automobile the likes of which that none of you have ever sat in in your life. This is the Rover 2000 TC. Uh, do you have another little whoopee in there, an Italian one? Ladies and gentlemen, 
Due to the failure of Cinzano's American advertising agency to stop people from swiping Cinzano ashtrays and start buying Cinzano vermouth, the workers at Cinzano have taken the advertising of their beloved product into their own hands. Ladies and gentlemen, Luigi Waring and his Piedmontese. Do not swipe a Cinzano ashtrays, buy Cinzano vermouth instead. Cinzano vermouth is better than ashtrays. Get it in your American head. Hi there, American friends. This is Luigi Waring telling you, oh boy, do we work hard to make Cinzano vermouth. We make Cinzano sweet vermouth and Cinzano dry vermouth. Mmm, good. And either kind is better than Cinzano ashtrays. So, ho. Do not swipe the Cinzano ashtrays. Concentrate on our vermouth. Our vermouth is very pleasant. When you put it in your mouth. Imported by Shefflin and Company, New York. He sounds vaguely like a, uh, that's a, that's a fascinating sounding Italian. Did you see, did you hear that? Could you reset that? There is one fantastic line in that commercial. Get it through your American head, oh. <laughs> Get it through your American head. No, it's all right. Luigi wearing Cinzano. Let's see, we have another commercial here. Hey, listen, uh. If you have a TV set and you're having hang-ups, if uh, every night you're watching a whole big crowd of uh, drifting ghosts across your screen and, and uh, you have begun to believe that every motion picture was shot in a, in a heavy snowstorm, uh, I would like to point out that uh, there is something you can do about it. And I'm telling you this as a, as a guy who for all of his life has fought antennas. Now, anybody who's an amateur radio operator knows more about antennas than any one other single element of the work that he does. You know, that's a funny thing. When people talk about electronics, they're always talking about transistors, one thing or another, and they rarely discuss the antenna systems, which are not not only the heart, but the lifeblood of any kind of communication system. You can have the greatest television set in the world. Believe me, friend. You can have one with, uh, with more preamplification than you need. You can have one with all the definition... Uh, with the, with the everything uh, conceivable, the degaussing systems are magnificent. But if you ain't getting a signal, man, forget it. It's just like the greatest automobile in the world doesn't do a doggone thing unless you got gas in it. And the signal is what makes that television set work, just like your receiver. You know, many people write to me and say, uh, "How come your radio station uh, is not loud?" And they somehow think it's it's us, you know. Uh, and uh, when you find out he's using a little uh, three-and-a-half-inch uh, plastic Japanese transistor radio he got for two-dollars-and-a-half, and it can't pick up the sound of a neon sign five feet away. However, uh, if you've had TV problems, we would like to recommend a Gavin Gold Crest antenna. Now, these antennas are specially designed for New York problems, uh, which presents all sorts of reflecting, uh, all kinds of dead spot problems, etc. And these are very high-gain antennas, that can be used for both color and black and white. And they have special types of insulation and so on that make them really last a long time. This is not an antenna you stick up and six weeks later she's beginning to leak through because the, uh, because the insulators are made out of, made out of balsa wood. This is a, this is a fine antenna and you can find the name of your local Gavin, that's G-A-V-I-N installation specialist by dropping it out to me, W-O-R, that's M-E-W-O-R, New York, 118. Or you can call Gavin Instruments. That's in Jersey at 201-356-3500.
That's 201-356-3500. Gavin. Now, let's see. We've done Gavin, Robert, Cinzano, Miller. Oh, one more thing. Yeah, two more things, actually. Uh, every month, uh, when, whenever a story of mine appears in Playboy, 94,000 people write and say, why didn't you tell us? Because when I found out there was a story in Playboy, it was already too late in the magazine was in the next month, and I couldn't get a copy. Uh, I have a short story of which I'm very proud of in the, the current issue of Playboy magazine, which is the April issue, A-P-R-I-L, April, April. And immediately, 1,600 kids are going to call Monday and say, what month did he say? <laughs> April. And it came out a couple of days ago on the newsstand. It's got a picture of guess uh, of a guess what on the cover. That's April, A-P-R-I-L, Playboy, right? And the name of the story is Scott Farkas and the Murdering Mariah, or Murderous Mariah, excuse me. And uh, speaking of Murderous Mariah, uh, old Murderous is going to be down at the limelight tomorrow. And, uh, boy, uh, I, I, I don't know what there is in the air. Whenever we go into late March and we begin to hit the springtime, there is a totally different atmosphere begins to settle down in the limelight. It's a peculiar kind of suppressed, ready-to-pop excitement. So everybody's overload relay is about ready to go bing, you know. And uh, tomorrow night, I'm going to wear a uh, nest of robins in my hair. I've promised this. It's a springtime because, after all, you know, the first day of spring is going to happen before the next limelight show. Correct, Amo? Right. That means that we're going to be celebrating the, the forthcoming first day of spring here tomorrow night at the Limelight, and that is a bacchanal. I'm, I'm telling you, no, no, I'm, I'm purely, uh, for those of you who wonder about my religion, I'm a Druid. And uh, the big time of the year for Druids, of course, is the spring, absolutely. And uh, I, I was already, I've uh, been down to Central Park a couple of times because there's a, there's a particular oak tree that uh, me and several other Druids use. Uh, we say mass there. We've got a scroll of uh, birch bark and it's a wonderful ceremony and that uh, tomorrow night uh, I'm going to wear a nest of robins in my hair and I'm going to wear my green tights and I'm going to do the whole thing it's going to be a uh, well um, I don't quite know how to say this but friends uh, it's a uh, I don't know whether I can get, get away with this on Friday especially on St. Patrick's Day but uh, um, when you know what it is they're celebrating when all those girls are Bryn Mawr trip around and they got those ribbons in their hands and they dance around this, uh, you know? Okay. Enough said, right? It's a fertility rite is what it is. It's going to be... <laughs> What's the matter? <laughs> no, I'm talking about whether or not we're going to have a fertile crop of radishes this spring. It's all... What a terrible mind you people have got. That's this Saturday night from 10.30 to midnight and if you can make it, fine. Give them a call at Oregon 52212. OR52212. Call them tonight. OR52212 and ask for fat stuff. Oregon52212 and make your reservation. Now, let's get back to work and, and about Ireland and the world of the Irish. Uh, it's a funny thing about Ireland, and I, I, uh, I, I, I uh, one thing I recall the first night that I was in Dublin uh, Ireland is a silent country, very little sound. In Ireland, and and uh, this uh, this perhaps adds to the strange poignancy of this country. Uh, there's a, there's a curious kind of silence that hangs over even the biggest cities. 
even in the middle of a of a giant traffic jam, somehow it's muted and silent. And I remember walking out of a out of the uh, the uh, hotel that I was living in, which was not far from the river in Dublin. And it was uh, it was March, this time of year, and the streets were wet. And there was a kind of grayness, a, a sort of wrapped-in cotton softness to everything. Ireland doesn't really get cold, you know, like we get cold here in New York or in, in America, because it is an island country, and the sea tempers the everything. It doesn't get warm either in the summertime, really. It's always sort of muted, and it's always vaguely green and gray. It's always a, a, a sense of somehow... Somebody hasn't really quite opened the curtain. There's a quality continually of, of you can't quite see in Ireland. Even in the bright sunlight, it's muted and soft. And so I'm walking along a winding street, and the, the concrete and the stones, it was a stone street, the bricks were rounded, and they were wet and kind of uh, slippery and gleaming. And I was walking along, must have been about nine, ten o'clock, and I'd come out of the hotel and I'd arrived that night and I checked in and I walked out and it was so vaguely foggy and I could see the fog hanging around the street lights, the turn in this street that I was walking along. And it was something that was kind of bothering me. I couldn't figure out what it was. It's a strange thing. And then I began to discover what it was. I could hear my own footsteps. It's the first time in a long time I've ever heard my feet on a street in a big city. I could hear my feet. And I could hear them echoing from side to side. And then, I, as I became conscious of this, I could hear feet all around me. I could hear feet in the next street. I could hear feet of people ahead of me and behind me. And then I, I, heard, I heard sounds of windows. Someone would open a window. And I would hear the sound of a door close. And I walked along the street and made a turn, and here was a, a soft light, a small... Everything is not... There's not much bright light in Dublin. Uh, when, you get out of, when you get out of the main square where the recent explosion was, if you remember a year or two ago, uh, everything is quiet and dark. And I saw, I saw a tavern, and I, I went into the tavern bar. And the bars and taverns in... in uh, in Ireland, they're almost exclusively masculine, you know. This, uh, this is a, the, the bar, tavern world of uh, Ireland is a special thing, and it's almost always masculine, or very old ladies. Somehow, when people get to be very old, they cease to have sex. I mean, they, be, they have no sex about them at all. And so you'll find old ladies quite often in a very masculine bar, something called the, the boar's head. Or uh, something called uh, Paddy Shillelagh, and you'll go in, and, and uh, they they have these huge spigots in that long bar, and all the men are standing wearing their caps and leaning against the bar, and drinking that magnificent beer and that fantastic stout that they drink in Ireland. I think the world's greatest beer, at least one of the great beer countries in the world, must be Ireland. Their beer is just magnificent, and uh, we're standing there, and I I drop in and have my beer, and then I go back out into the street after I've heard those soft, murmuring voices, a curious kind of uh, 
Music is always in the air in Ireland. And I walked down the street a little further, and I could see people ahead in the haze, in, the, in, the, in, that, in that peculiar kind of... You know the halo effect you get when there's, a, when there's a fog and a light is shining through it? I could see these people walking along through it, and the light shining off of their rubber raincoats. I could hear their feet echoing. And I went home that night. I went back to the hotel room, which looked like it had been built roughly 1871. Had this curious kind of striped wallpaper with vines growing up the side of it. And a great wooden cabinet up against the wall that was made out of some kind of, some kind of bent sort of dark brownish wood with a big key sticking out of it. And great doors, all varnished and heavy, and the ceiling was 30 feet above my head with what was left of gas jets, believe it or not, still sticking out of the out of the plaster. And they had just recently put in electricity. You could see it was sort of jerry built. It was a green wire. You know the kind of the kind of electrical wire that has green silk over it? That old kind of wire that grandmas have in their houses attached to their lamps. It was this green wire came down and there was a yellow light bulb. And this was my room and in Ireland on a threadbare carpet and I was somehow reminded of my grandmother in the south side of Chicago and I sat down on that squeaky bed and I and I took out of my bag a copy of one of my absolutely favorite books James Joyce's The Dubliners now I'm uh, I've uh, of course you, you uh, whenever they talk of Joyce they always speak of uh, Finnegan's Wake or they talk about uh, a portrait of the young artist, or the artist as a young man, or they, they talk about Ulysses. But uh, to me, uh, some of the best of all Joyce is found in the Dubliners. And once you're in Dublin, and, and Ireland in general, you understand what Joyce is talking about, and these stories of the old priests and the young boys in the river, and the story of the girls under the streetlights, and all of it come to life in an unbelievable way. A great writer, and particularly in... in uh, in this kind of evocation of a strange, elusive mood. And so I lay on the bed, this lumpy bed that, that uh, smelled like straw and smelled like old bed springs. And I looked down, I could see that, that worn carpet. One thing about the Irish, somehow, there's a curious kind of honesty. But it's not the kind of honesty that we talk about, honesty, honesty. They have an honest poverty. Uh, they don't mind if the carpet is worn. Nobody sees to say anything about it. It's all worn. You could see it's raveling at the edges. And I'm, I'm lying in the bed there with the yellow light bulb hanging over me. And I could hear the footsteps outside. I'd opened the... They had the big high windows, the old-fashioned windows that opened up outside to the outside air. And that soft, foggy air was drifting in. I could smell the river and I could hear these feet walking past. And it was Ireland. Well, I, I'm the kind who gets up very early in the morning whenever I go any place because I, I figure I can sleep a lot back home. And so I am up at 5.30 in the morning and I'm, I'm awakened uh, by, by a sound. And the sound is a, is, a, is a banging and a rattling that woke me up. I was almost on the ground floor in my hotel room. And I got up and looked out of the window and down below me was a man delivering milk in big bottles he was wearing this cap, and he had a horse. Now, this is, a, this is something I had not seen or heard of ever outside of, uh, it's been a long time. You know, there was this horse and this big wagon with, <clears throat> with rubber tires, the bottles banging, 
And off he went with the clipping and the clopping into this dark, soft, easy air. Now, how long ago was this? Just a couple of years ago. It sounds like it's something out of the ancient past, but it's not. Ireland is still there. And perhaps this is one of the reasons why there is a strange sense of poignancy about Ireland. As as you ride along the roads in Ireland, you keep coming across old horses pulling old carts with old men sitting on piles of straw and peat, looking with watery blue eyes at the soft gray hills. It's a curious feeling. And they're not there for the tourists. They're there because they're there. They're there because that's the way life is. And so I, I thought uh, that that afternoon as I as the, as the sun came up and I walked all over Dublin, I remember <laughs> that night uh, I, I was sitting in a theater in a garage. A friend of mine, uh, I'm, I'm moving backwards in time and space here in different, uh, the way Joyce does. This friend of mine said, would you like to go to a, to a strange theater? A good theater. He says, I know you were doing a lot of off-Broadway. At that time, I had been doing a lot of off-Broadway acting. I'd been in several off-Broadway productions that they'd heard about in Ireland. He says, he says, as an off, as an Broadway, as an off-Broadway uh, actor, you'd be interested in this. And we went down an alley. It was maybe 11, 12 o'clock at night. And we drove in his little old rattle trap Anglia, his car. We drove up and down a dark, cold, dank alley, and finally we arrived back of a garage. And he knocked, and a man looked out and peered at him and said, uh, Oh, come in, come in. He said, who is, who is this who was with you? And he introduced me. And we are now in a dank little theater that's been built into what looks like a stone garage that is part of a whole series of garages. And it had maybe 75 seats at the most. And the people sat in this cold garage that was unheated, and they wore coats and fur hats. And we sat huddled and watched the rehearsal of a play that was beginning to go into production up on this tiny postage stamp stage. And there must have been maybe 15, not more than, oh, 15, more than five of us sitting in this little dark huddle theater. And all five of the people had in some way or another business with this production. And I sat and watched them rehearse. And they were, they were actors from the Abbey Theater who were acting after the Abbey work or the gate work that they had done the Abbey. Uh, they were doing this in their off time. It was an underground theater. And this man sat next to me and he'd been drinking. Uh, and he, he turned to me and he says, you're a shepherd, aren't you? And I said, yes. He says, ah, night people. And I says, yeah, night people. He says, ah. Night people, huh? And I could smell the whiskey about him. And that was the night that I met and got to know Brendan Bayhan. And this was before Brendan Bayhan's first production. He had never been produced. And he was sitting in this theater, and they were about to do his first show, and he was sitting hunched down, and we talked for hours after that and went out to a tavern on the other side of Dublin that night that was open. It was like an underground tavern because they have very strict liquor laws, believe it or not, in Ireland. And uh, people have to knock twice and crawl in through the basement window to get it after midnight <laughs> or after the curfew, whenever that is. And we went past. But this is another another reminiscence which uh, bears little uh, importance to this this afternoon uh, that I spent with, with another friend, Seamus. And uh, I was meeting Seamus for lunch. And we, 
we went down this long, winding street, and we finally came to this tavern where Seamus always ate. He was a newspaper man, a genuine uh, ink-stained wretch. And <laughs> in, the, in the Dickensian sense, they really are, you know. The Dickensian newspaper still exists in places like like Ireland and Scotland, where uh, where there is ink, and the guys who write for the papers actually get ink-stained. And so I'm with this ink-stained wretch, uh, who, by the way, is also a member of the IRA. I got to know very well, and we talk much about the IRA. And so now we are sitting in this tavern, and uh, around us are all these men, and they're all they're all in one way or another connected with the IRA, the uh, Irish Underground. Do you know what they uh, what they eat uh, quite often in Ireland? Uh, in in an, in an afternoon, what they eat for lunch? It's a it's a funny thing. Irish food. You don't hear much about real Irish food in America, but the one thing that I recall having uh, as we sat down was a plate of of uh, mushrooms, fresh mushrooms that had been picked that afternoon, and fried in butter, and served with braised kidney. But the point that as we as we sat in Ireland, uh, a, a mushroom in a way, is uh, is their equivalent of French fried potatoes. As you know, you go into a, a tavern in America and you can get French fries uh, with almost anything you eat. Well, in Ireland, at one kind of, at what type of year and in one kind of place, what they serve and sell are these magnificent tiny mutton mushrooms, which grow so much in this climate of Ireland that sometimes you stand and you look down on the shady side of a hill and it seems to be all white and gray. And when you get close to it, you see that it's coated with and covered with a soft coating of tiny button mushrooms that have grown since the night before. And they fry them in butter. And so we sat there and ate the buttered mushrooms in this tavern in, in uh, Dublin. And I said to Seamus, I said to, you know, Seamus, it's, uh, it's, it's almost a cult now, isn't it? This thing of James Joyce. He says, yeah, he says, as a matter of fact, he says, you know, Joyce, Joyce is probably Dublin's biggest business now. He says, Joyce is our, our, our big industry now here. And I said, wouldn't that have kind of amused Joyce? Don't you think that Joyce would have, would have been kind of bugged by this? And he says, yes. He says, you know, I knew him well. He says, I knew Joyce. I knew him when he lived here in town. And he says, and I knew him when he was, when he was uh, an ex, he says, how do they call an expatriate? He said, I, I knew him then. And I said, uh, what did he feel about Ireland uh, after he became this famous person? And everyone loved him. It was a long pause and we're eating the mushrooms and you could hear the taps drawing the stout and drawing that fantastic Irish beer and all the men sitting around. It was lunchtime, you know. This was not tourist time. People do not go to Ireland at that time of the year. It's uh, it's considered one of their worst times of the year as far as climate is concerned. And uh, it was just a lot of Irish working men and men from the newspapers all sitting around drinking and talking. And he looked out over the crowd and he says, oh, he says, oh, he says half of these men here knew him. And sitting over in the corner was a man who looked a little like... Uh, Oh, I'd say a little like a debauched Charles Lawton. Great handlebar mustache. Uh, the kind of handlebar mustache that uh, comes out of Dickens.
And he's sitting there and he says, uh, he says, uh, Sean, he says, Sean, uh, uh, come, uh, come over here. And Sean got up and dropped cigar ashes all over the place and came and sat down at our table with us. And uh, Seamus said, uh, this is my friend Shepard. His uh, mother was a Rafferty. That kind of made me in, you see. My grandmother would have flipped her cork if she'd have thought that all of a sudden I was using her South Chicago Irish, which is very different from Boston Irish. And uh, much different. I I can't tell you how different the worlds are. You'll find a lot of the South Chicago Irish written about in the works of James T. Farrell, who wrote the Lonigan trilogy. Lonigan, you know, was a typical South Chicago Irishman. Studs Lonigan. Lonigan is an Irish name. And uh, my father lived one block away from Farrell in the land of the Rafferties. And uh, do you know that the, almost all of the people who worked in the stockyards on the south side of Chicago and who worked in the steel mill were Irish at one point in the evolution of the Irish in America. And they had a very important uh, impact on the whole life of Chicago. Bathhouse Kelly, Bathhouse John, that whole crowd. And uh, even today, I would say, and I would dare to suggest, that Chicago is a more Irish city than is Boston. Boston is something else again. Oh, yes, you know, uh, they have had a Mayor Kelly in Chicago for a long time. And so, uh, as I sat there, Sean said, uh, his mother is Flora Rafferty from Cork, you know. I said, yes, I'm trying to, I have no Irish accent at all, but I have an Irish look. And so I sat there and looked vaguely sinister. And then Sean says, ah, good to see you. And we drank some more stout. And then Sean said, uh, and what are you doing here? I said, oh, just being here, you know. It's just the best thing to be. And we sat for another ten minutes. And then Seamus said, uh, he's curious about Joyce, you know. And there was a long pause and... Sean says, well, I always was too, you know, although I was one of his old friends. And we sat for another long, pregnant moment. He says, you know, this is where he actually really came, you know. He, he lived here in this tavern, not in the one all the tourists go to, you know. And I said, uh, uh, what did he do? He says, oh, well, you know what he really did here, you know. He ate mushrooms. And so we ate mushrooms and... Outside, people walked past, and you could see the gray, soft fog drifting in from the sea, and you could smell the river, and you could hear a footstep now and again. And then it became one o'clock suddenly, and they all got up and went back to work. And I was in Ireland. And Seamus said, I'll see you tonight. And I said, see you tonight, Seamus. And he walked down the street with his coat collar turned up against that kind of cutting March wind. And I had been in Dublin on St. Patrick's Day, which is very different from being in New York on St. Patrick's Day. Very different indeed. And the river flowed on. And there it was, Ireland. That strange, indefinable, peculiar, tugging, poignant, beautiful, gray, green, soft, shadowy country where there really are elves and there really are fairies, and they really do eat fried buttered mushrooms on a quiet Friday afternoon.